This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and in this episode we are in conversation with Nanjira Sambuli. Uh, Now, Nanjira is a researcher, policy analyst and advocacy strategist uh, who works looking at the intersection of technology with governance, media, entrepreneurship and culture um, and through a gender lens as well. Um, And I was lucky enough to uh, see Nanjira on a panel uh, for an event I was also involved with quite recently, um, organised by Wings, which I'll put some links in the show notes to. Um, And I thought what she had to say on the panel was absolutely fascinating. So I was very keen to get her on the podcast. um, And it was great to have a chance to chat with her. Um, She previously worked at the World Wide Web Foundation, leading uh, policy advocacy to promote digital equality there. Um, she's also involved in a number of different uh, organisations. So she's on DFID's Digital Advisory Panel, and she was previously on the United Nations Secretary General's High Level Panel on Digital Cooperation um, from 2018 to 19. Um, so Nanjira and I had a great wide ranging conversation about technology and civil society. So we discussed whether or not um, the distinction between civil society. And digital civil society was meaningful anymore or whether actually technology issues were so cross-cutting that they needed to be seen as the concern of uh, all civil society organisations. We talked quite a bit about the the ways in which civil society could potentially influence the tech industry and the development of technology and whether issues there around power imbalances between civil society organisations and the tech industry, between grantees and funders within civil society and between organisations in, for want of a better term, the Global North and the Global South also created power dynamics that made some of that challenging. Um, We talked about what could be done to link up the existing work of sort of digital civil society activists and the more traditional parts of civil society. Um, We discussed some of the the challenges that might come around as a result of increased uh, adoption of digital technologies through the pandemic and whether that had raised awareness within civil society of not only the opportunities of technology, but also some of the challenges and unintended consequences, particularly around the adoption of uh, new platform technologies and the reliance on them and whether that reliance and dependence was going to create new issues for um, for civil society organisations in the future. Uh, we talked about issues around trust um, and whether the way in which uh, digital technology was affecting notions of trust and authenticity was a particular challenge for civil society organisations um, around sort of ideas of the attention economy and that kind of thing. Um, we talked about whether models of philanthropy and funding needed to shift power as well as financial resources um, and whether those conversations that were already happening about that kind of shift of power needed to be linked up with conversations about technology better. 
we talked about whether the fact that a growing amount of philanthropic wealth was coming out of the tech sector presented opportunities, but also particular challenges in terms of the mindset that brings about the nature of social problems and the solutions to them, and whether there's a danger of a kind of tech solutionism mindset. Um, And we also talked about the importance of the role that civil society could play Um, in helping us to look ahead to how things might be in the future and kind of bring together diverse viewpoints uh, to think through some of the challenges around the impact of technology and the kind of broader issues around how we want society to look in the future. Uh, And Nanjira offered some really interesting thoughts and useful challenge about some of the kind of framing around foresight and and futures. Um, So without further ado, let's go into the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I'll be back at the end of the podcast with the usual bits of housekeeping and tidying up, but let's get on with the interview. Okay, great. So I'm here with Nanjira Sambuli. Hi, Nanjira. Hi, Rodri. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Um, and Nanjira is uh, a tech policy and governance researcher um, and many things more besides that. Um, but rather than me trying to sort of explain your background for you, maybe a good starting point would be if you're able to say a bit about the work you do uh, and kind of what sort of areas you work on and how that brings you into contact with issues around civil society and philanthropy. Sure. I I spent most of my waking hours thinking and reflecting on the impacts of technologies across societies and how that loop is coming into being, how societies shape the technologies in this, in, that come into their, into their space, but also how technologies are also impacting societies. So in that kind of work, I sort of have looked at how that straddles the roles that we understand of governments, private sector, civil society actors, and then also, um, you know, philanthropy and other actors who are becoming, you know, institutions de force, so to speak. So that kind of work has really brought me into a really useful and interesting patch point where I have um, in- interactions with all these sectors and see how they're contending with the question of tech in, in society. Great. Um, and, and one thing I'm, I'm sort of interested, you know, in your thoughts on as uh, to kind of frame this conversation, I hear quite a few people who have been engaged with technology issues from within civil society for quite a while, making the case that seeing it as a specific cause area or a sort of subsector of, you know, digital civil society really doesn't make much sense anymore, because these issues are so cross-cutting and have such wide impacts that they affect pretty much any organisation in civil society. Do you, do you get a sense that that is the case and that civil society in the round needs to wake up a bit more to some of these issues? I think it's particularly interesting how, as societies generally, we are bound or by labels. Uh, well, there is a case to make for what would be called digital civil society, where you might a subset of civil society actors, for example, new ones, who focus specifically on digital issues. It is also okay to have a legacy and functional civil society organizations start to uh, understand or uh, address organically what digital technologies mean for the societies in which they they work and for whose issues they advocate. I think more importantly is the question of how, as a sector, we can keep an eye, ear out, uh, make necessary noise and have a finger on the pulse 
around what technology is and isn't, what it could and couldn't be, what it should and shouldn't be, rather than get too caught up in the labels of whether one fits as digital more than the other. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the necessity for having some areas of civil society that might specialise in these issues and, and then a kind of broader long tail of civil society that just needs to, to engage with, with them where it's relevant to their cause area. On, on that latter one, as you say, part of the challenge is working out how to make that practically possible for organisations that might not be rooted in technology. Do you have any sort of thoughts on what more we could do to to help organizations that aren't necessarily embedded in, in the world of technology and these debates that are going on understand its relevance and, and relate it to the work that they do? Everyone is impacted by these technologies, it suffice to say, right? As, as with many other things that happen these days that have such global impact, if you will. The challenge with a sector like technology, which is now becoming a sort of mainstream, is we are prone to think of it as we would say sectors like health, where you might have a doctor or a neurosurgeon vis-a-vis, you know, a healthcare practitioner, community worker, and so on. But we do need technical people who understand the bits and bobs of the technology, but we are all impacted by these technologies. And so we are stakeholders in that regard. I think it's really important to give civil society actors latitude to just ask the simple questions around what a particular technology is, how it's coming into their communities, assess the promise versus the hype, focus more on these sort of like anthropological questions over and above running after each buzzword or each technology that's the the, the, the flavor of the season. And in that way, what that does is situate uh, these issues into the bigger societal issues. Digital technologies never have, never will be existing in a vacuum. They're not just going to disrupt because as a net positive element. And even if they do in one area, it's not guaranteed that they will another. So the communities that know themselves best and how they organize best are are also experts as much as any uh, technician in the technical space, whether it's a coder, AI engineer, or any other uh, profession has their technical expertise and their understanding of what they're trying to code into existence. Yeah, absolutely. I think I always think that finding ways to help civil society organisations think in terms of the the sort of affordances of tech and what it enables you to do or what it might sort of prevent you from doing is much more useful than expecting everybody to have to get to uh, to grips with all the detail. And as you say, it does seem as though there are people who have that technical expertise in civil society and that sort of digital civil society bit. But I get I get the sense that that bit of civil society is too often quite distinct from um, many of the more sort of traditional parts and there aren't necessarily good linkages. Is Does that sort of chime with the way you see things and what do you think we could do to, to better connect some of these disparate parts of civil society so they can inform one another? I agree that there aren't as yet sort of Uh, interconnections between civil society actors on these issues. And part of it, I think, is uh, the digital civil society organizations or organizing has really evolved from how digital uh, technologies in the ICT, so information and communications area sort of came about. And so those issues were still enclosed in that. But today we cannot talk about labor, health, education, or anything else really without talking about digital. And so that's sort of how it, you know, it just is a progression on how digital technologies are becoming a mainstay. You know, I was part of the UN panel on digital cooperation where we 
spoke about the age of digital interdependence. So I think it's a time and it's a healthy time to have um, evolutionary conversations across both set, you know, distinctions, if you will, of those who focus specifically on issues like net neutrality in the past or digital rights, with those who've been looking at labor issues, uh, rights to education, rights to development, and so on and so forth, and find creative ways to collaborate and work together. And this is not just a a, a reserve for civil society really is a reckoning for all society, um, institutions now to figure out how the multi-trans cross-disciplinary ways of working come together because digitalization is coming for everything. We need expertise from both angles really to make sure that we put sufficient guardrails uh, to minimize risks and maximize benefits. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And and linking that up with something you, you said before, making the point that, you know, there is just as much expertise on some of these other issues from within civil society. And actually, you know, we should see that as at least as, as valuable as the technical expertise coming from, from the tech sector. Do, in terms of the tech sector itself, though, do you get a sense that they genuinely value that expertise on sort of societal issues and societal impacts of technology? Or is there a bit of an asymmetry because those who have the sort of technical expertise about how machine learning works, for instance, are seen as having uh, information and knowledge that is somehow more exalted than somebody coming from civil society who just understands, you know, the issues facing communities? By and large, the trajectory of digital technologies has been one of solutionism, you know, where um, particular solutions have been posited as the savior, the it, you know, you see the language that has been used around some of them and really has created these pedestals for the tech sector to come and rescue us from ourselves kind of uh, dynamic. What that in turn has done is created this bubble, unfortunately, uh, where these people can wake up and because they're suddenly little gods, their understanding of the world is what will be coded into uh, what we, we end up with in our hands or in our lives. And that, that, that has really been an unfortunate trajectory because, you know, looking at internet, for example, which emanated from academia where, you know, other sectors and other, you know, people had the spirit of collaboration that has been lost in these bubbles that have been created in how the world is ordered today and particularly what's called the marketplace of ideas. That said, with some of the uh, particularly negative impacts of technologies, you know, something like how, uh, you know, a popular tool, a communication tool like Facebook has had adverse effects in certain communities, has started to bring to bear the fact that it's not all good. It's not just build it and there will come, you know, we, we have good vibes uh, that are coded into it and that's how it will play out in society. That, so that now what we are seeing is the tech sector in its varied manifestations does signal in many ways that they do understand or appreciate that these are issues that need to be addressed, but the efforts, the commitment and the resources to actually do these things differently is still, uh, is still lagging behind. And the pressure it needs to come from all across, not just from civil society, but from all of us, with regardless of sector affiliation, to really call for um, stronger accountability right from the conception of a technology that's supposed to impact people or go out into the world, right to the point of deployment and, and create a virtuous circle, because we cannot leave accountability as an after the fact, or when bodies have been, you know, move fast and then break societies has happened. We cannot afford to put uh, societies as collateral for technologies. No, to totally. And that I guess that goes to something I wanted to ask you about how civil society should 
uh, view the process of trying to influence the wider development of tech? Because it, it seems to me over the, the last few years, there's been something of a paradigm of trying to work with the tech sector and in partnership with the tech sector around the framing of sort of tech ethics and ensuring the development of, of technologies ethical but actually some of the sort of power dynamics that are always there between civil society organizations and tech sector uh, companies seem to make that in practice not really work in most instances or from from what i've seen do, do you think that it that it is difficult to overcome those challenges and does that sort of push us more towards thinking about you know outsider influencing tactics and trying to use public opinion to to push the tech sector i always like to address that from the point of power as you pointed out these are power dynamics which even when we step take a step back from the tech sector alone how civil society is uh, received or perceived in across different jurisdictions uh, unfortunately for the most part it's an, as an adversarial actor and not somebody who can be on the table at every step of the conversation and deliberation. And so that dynamic is naturally just progressing into technologies because the tech sector is by and large just operating like any other sector, say extractives or others or multinationals really. They have not necessarily redefined how uh, organizing happens in that sense, if in a private sector sense, so to speak. And we see that even with civil society that is then invited to the table, they have to refashion themselves and rejig themselves to use a language uh, of like doing well while doing good, you know, the social enterprise-esque dynamic that feels a, a bit more comfortable, much less so than the one that comes and says about power, agency, you know, morals, ethics even. Uh, and that 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 remains the, it's almost intangible to um, a dynamic because these are the, the, the really invisible things that do make the world move or not move. And so always speaking to them over and above what nice language we can have on a proposal or a series of conversations is really, really important to keep an eye out for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, one thing building on that I was interested in as well from, from your experience do you think you know in terms of those power imbalances which I, I absolutely agree are there between civil society and the tech sector and also I guess you know within civil society itself which I'd like to come on to in a moment but are there particular challenges for civil society organizations coming from the, the global south in you know if that's the right term to use um, you know I, I'm not sure I really like the terminology but it's just a way of kind of capturing you know an idea and I guess there are places around the world in which the negative impacts of technology are likely to be felt earliest and hardest. And it always seems to me in some ways, those are the communities that are going to face the biggest challenges in terms of having their voices heard. Do, do you think there are particular challenges there? Uh, in, in fact, more nefarious. It's like in that particular sector, it's a doubling down on the worst possible traits that could be around these geographical dimensions, if you if you can broadly call it that. In my personal experience, for example, the, the rush to box me or sort of pigeonhole me as a Global South actor or Global South this and that has been really interesting because it you're then boxed into, you know, having conversations as if it's just this little thing that happens in your corner of the world. Come tell us and then, you know, thank you for that. We'll take it on an advisement kind yeah. of thing. So there's a lot of pigeonholing at individual and organizational level. So, and this notion yet, and this goes back to something else that's really interesting. The, the world as we understand it and the international order as we understand it is still so centered on US and Europe. The rest of us are still considered an other. And those dynamics then sort of have a very cascading, a negatively cascading effect. 
And then the labels come into that and compound that. That is why it's very tricky, for example, and unfortunate that, uh, you know, civil society organizations in Myanmar, for example, all the way back in 2013, or in fact, even earlier, I recall, because I used to work on with them, trying to get Facebook's attention about how the uh, platform was being misused and the potential of, you know, violence. And, you know, we've all seen now what has happened. Why were they not heard then? Did it have to wait for um, other civil society peers, say in the US themselves, to speak for the Myanmar colleagues for that to be heard? You know, then we see, see those dynamics happen. But even civil society alliances are then shortchanged because we have to have Rodri come in to speak in for Nigeria, when Nigeria has been very clear about what the issues are. These are the these are the underlying tensions as much as we are more into connected today through these technologies that still undermine you know how we can build a net positive world and have net positive effects of these great otherwise great inventions so the the the, the questions of power remain so potent the questions of who has a right to speak who has a right to speak uh, on issues and then they're considered to have a planetary scale impact. And we see this even in philanthropy, you know, where it might take a particular actor or a particular tech player as well to say something others have been saying for a long, long time. Maybe because finally they read a book, one book, <laughs> and then felt that uh, they were moved. So we have these dynamics around centering certain people, certain regions, certain perspectives that are undermining the good work we could all do and the signals for the, the harms that are coming from the, you know, the harbingers really, as you said, you know, that are mostly from, again, quote unquote, the global south. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's a huge problem in this this whole area, and it make it makes me think. You know, in terms of philanthropic money coming in and trying to play a positive role here, so foundations or funders coming in, are there ways in which they can actually do that to help overcome some of those power dynamics between civil society and the tech sector, but without just introducing other problematic power dynamics themselves between you know funders and grantees or between institutions from the UK and, and the US and those from, from other parts of the world? You know, the world has taught us that money and power, when you have them, are one hell of a drug. Even mm. when you, you set out with good intentions, uh, you know, those inadvertent dynamics can be introduced. I would like to see a lot more of philanthropic actors, whether they're coming from the tech sector itself or those who are coming from other dynamics who are entering into tech, just taking a humble role. And that's a really difficult thing and a difficult call to ask. Just go into a community that you think you want to give back to, if that's the language, and ask. Um, sit with the, build trust, uh, listen, and then shape things and tweak them, adjust them per those that, what has been said from those communities. You know, it's a really tra a tragic thing that we don't really have any sectors that other than perhaps civil society broadly that do that. You know, corporates will do their thing, governments are busy doing their thing. Then those who are giving back are still giving back on their own terms and on things that they fashion. They feel like that's how the world should be ordered because they made it. And then now, you know, they think they can do it too. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, you know. Uh, it would be really great if a few more people just took a step back and asked where they can help rather than here's how help is packaged, take it or leave it. Or I really take it or take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the choice, isn't it? Um, no, and I think it it 
you know, it's we're talking here in the specific context of sort of tech issues, but I think that point goes to a much wider conversation that it, that is going on in the world of philanthropy. Although I think often the talk is not necessarily matched by action uh, across the board about the need to shift power as well as financial resources and to find ways of making decision making more participatory and these sorts of things. So, you know, I think joining those conversations up with the conversation about tech is really important as well, because they quite often in the world of philanthropy, those are two separate uh, areas of discussion. And um, it made me think as well, when you were saying there about about uh, the, another thing I wanted to ask was, you know, one of the trends that we're seeing, certainly in the US, but also kind of more broadly globally is, is where wealth is being created is in the tech industry, largely. So a lot of the f- big philanthropy we're seeing is coming out of that wealth and out of that industry. And obviously, you then have donors who have a very particular worldview uh, and probably have a very particular view of what the problems are and what the ideal solutions are. Do you think that makes it more difficult to to get this kind of engagement that we're we're discussing here? And more risky, if you ask me, because the the trajectory of how they've made it is so unique. Uh, it cannot afford to be given this notion that it can work for everybody else. But that's exactly what happens. We Uh, tend to put these actors on pedestals based on their success stories that they know what could fix the world, that they suddenly can wake up and they're climate change experts, you know, Uh, and not listen to lived expertise, studied expertise, and other forms of expertise that have not followed that trajectory. So that power dynamic is already baked, uh, first at that individual on the pedestal level and for whatever resulting institutions that that they set up. So much so that then even if you get the best actors to be in those philanthropic institutions, can they really bypass that power rather than virtual signaling and using all the right language? These are the core issues that can you know, they call for a very interesting intellectual and moral honesty, as, do, as does much of the reform we need to see in the world. But these are difficult conversations for most people to have because it means telling a lot of people, take a step back, you know, uh, you're not the one with a solution. It has not worked that way for everybody else. And this is creating a lot of anger in the world, you know. Can you imagine a local upstart young woman in a village who understands, has built something that works for their community. They understand that, but they're not going to get the support to do it because their government or those who have the resourcing uh, to support that kind of thing to scale or just within within the community are busy paying attention to a God on a pedestal, if you will, who will only use them as a, as a punchline or anecdote in a TED talk. You know, what kind of dynamics we're encoding. And this is where all of us who intersect across the sectors need to hold space for these conversations and really find a boldness to to assert that we need to have that conversation. We've seen this even before the tech, uh, you know, tech tech sector took off with development, for example, uh, with civil political rights issues, for example, but we're encoding them and then we're baking them into such a um, black box that is technology and the way the extraction of, who's getting the benefits is becoming so, is such a disparity. If we do not make room for uh, addressing this now, we might end up in a very dangerous path, especially for this decade we've just started. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do, you, do you get any sense in, the, in what you've seen in the work you do of there being any sort of shift towards more 
sort of philanthropic support and funder support coming from outside of the traditional centres, maybe of the the UK and the US and, and Europe, and sort of from within countries themselves, either, you know, again, from newly wealthy donors within those countries or foundations or, or kind of the, the tech sector. And if so, you know, does, does that help at all? Or, or is that sort of just as problematic in its own way? Tends to follow the same philanthropic uh, approach. I mean, I'm thinking here of the philanthropic uh, organizations set up by billionaires like here in Africa or in India, who, well, first and foremost, tends to hire the same folks who've been in the philanthropic sector. So they set out the new roles and then it's the same stuff. It's not even getting the same people from their communities to do it. So there's an institutionalization of philanthropy that does not allow much change to happen if you're going to go look for the same people. So I'll move from one to the other. We have philanthropy hopping, if you will. So you're not necessarily getting new uh, insights that are rejigging what, you know, people seem to have energy and excitement about. So that's one area, for example. Uh, And I guess still the question of, you know, will philanthropy get its work itself out of the job, right? Is that a goal? Is that something we've seen? And is that something we're working towards? I feel like we're living in a world where it's just a proliferation of philanthropy and civil society and a weakening of governments and a complete strengthening of a private sector that's creating this really uh, polarized world where how do you get all these institutions to work? How do we put ourselves together to then heal the world? But these, these conversations are really rare to find like on a really real and then reformative level. Uh, and that, that's where we're short, shortchanging ourselves collectively. So that philanthropic actors, in my view, should be able to cultivate a very diplomatic role to work with every sector and be that listener and holder of space for he or she who's not, or they who are not on the table at a particular moment when they are, because they're usually afforded space, you know? But it will take a big reckoning within how that sector is aligned, whether it's the new players who are coming from the tech sector with their effective altruism or thinking of the world as a hack or a coding stack, it's, we're going to need a lot more humility and a lot more room to have these conversations if else we're just, you know, more of the same, but with more tech to boot. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think on that question of humility, it's, you know, I've heard this in, in other contexts around philanthropy, that one of the big challenges is and always has been the sort of funder or donor ego and and the fact that our narratives of philanthropy are all built around the the donor or the funder coming in and having the solution and and being given the the praise for having solved a problem whereas actually if you've got that humility you've probably got to accept that you are not going to be front and center in the story about what was done and that's not really your role but that you know it's, it's that's that's a big ask because it, it people there's a loss there that people are going to have to face in terms of power and prestige um, so, you know, I think I think whilst that is the right direction of travel, I, I don't think we should assume that it's uh, it is as straightforward as all that. Because it also, yeah, just real quick, because what it does then, and if we're in public, it then retreats, but then it's privately being enforced, right? We then don't get to see that, right? And that then becomes even worse because we we it's like an invisible hand of power. And so that's a challenge even in, in conversations in, you know, society writ large around when we're calling back for power to you know step back or cede power how do we make sure that doesn't doesn't give it a cover to work insidiously and under sort of like under this iceberg you know 
there's the what we saw above the surface, but then beneath the surface, how do we keep an eye for beneath the surface? I think we've done a good job with the language, the signaling, the do's and don'ts, principles, ethics, and so on and so forth. But that's just what we see above surface level. The real work now is what lies underneath, which is deeper and more institutionalized and very historical. Absolutely. Now, this is a really good point, because I guess in in the particular context, say, of philanthropy and the dynamics between donors and funders and recipients, you know, there's there's a a sort of caricatured version, which is very overt power dynamics and sort of forcing your will on grantees. And that does happen and it's problematic. But there's also a version which is actually it's just more to do with the choices you make about what you do or don't fund and the areas you work on and the types of activities you're willing to fund, which might all be very well motivated. But actually, those choices, when you have very large financial resources, can shape entire areas of activity, um, even if you're doing it with the best of intentions. So the power dynamics are still problematic, even if you have sort of acknowledged them. Um, and, and so you, you have to constantly be sort of challenging your role in all of this if you're a funder. Um, and yeah, I wanted to ask actually one one thing, I think, again, that's really feels really interesting at this moment in time thinking about civil society and the question of awareness and engagement in issues around technology is it feels as though as a result of the pandemic we've all had to kind of pile into the the digital space and lots of organizations that that weren't really that engaged before have, have had to you know even at the very basic level of doing things via zoom and trying to kind of work remotely do you get any sense of that given organizations more awareness, um, I guess, both of the positive potential of technology, but also maybe of some of these wider societal issues and, and sort of unintended consequences? I think it comes down to how um, organizations um, over and above individuals allow for those kinds of conversations to happen in the sense that for the first time on an almost planetary scale, a lot more people are having to have those lived effects of having technology so intimately in their lives, whether by force or by their own natural progression into it. The pandemic has been a catalyst for that. So I'd be interested for an organization that didn't fancy itself a tech one, whether it's in any sector really, and now having to use these tools, if there are spaces to have those critical conversations around, well, what was that like? What was that experience like? Does this, we've read in the papers somewhere that privacy is a big issue. How do we think about that? How do we code that into the conversations we're having in our work? I think that's what will digitize all of our our societal institutional you know bearings whether we have those conversations or we're just consumers based because we were constricted into this thing and that's what will distinguish those who then do what kinds of work going forward on the entire sort of like uh you know ecosystem that is technology those who will understand that we are labor organizers or for example and we've seen that you know through this pandemic it's a it's a really bad deal that gig economy workers get how do we bring that into our labor conversations? Or how do we look at climate change, which is really interesting to talk about, and this, the link between tech and climate change and emissions, CO2 emissions. As much as we're traveling less and moving around less, the emissions we are we are all putting out there by being connected now are just as bad. So what? how do we square the circle on that? It's a really interesting time to have these conversations. The question is whether in any institutional dispensation, there's, there's room and latitude to do that. And not just think, oh, yeah, well, we transitioned or, oh, no, we couldn't. And it's just those little same, uh, let me, for lack of a better phrase, call them 101 conversations about tech, which have been going on for a long time. We need to get through to three or five in advance, if you will, uh, to use university metaphors. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think you know, it's a really um, good point about the questions like awareness of the environmental impact of technology, which I agree is is something that I think people are starting to sort of wake up to in this, this kind of naive assumption that the digital world somehow exists in a magical substrate that doesn't actually have any impact in, in the real world and require natural resources. People are realising that doesn't hold true. Um, but I, I guess in terms of the, that shift to digital that has been made by lots of organisations through necessity during the pandemic, I, I do worry that they've, because it's had to happen so fast, there hasn't been the time and space for some of those more sort of thoughtful and considered conversations about are these the right tools? What are the trade-offs we're making here? And creating the space for organisations to have those thoughts and conversations after the fact is that much more difficult um and i guess one thing i wanted to ask you about is a, a particular problem it seems to me in that is at a kind of macro level is lots of organizations now in having made some of those shifts have become very reliant on in reality a very small handful of digital platforms and i think often there is an assumption that they're somehow kind of digital public space and they really aren't um, and, you know, do you think that awareness of some of the those dependencies that we're we're developing on platforms and, and what this means in terms of the power that we're ceding to those platforms is one of the kind of main issues that civil society really needs to get to grips with at the moment? Here's where one civil society actor need, really needs to step up and really sing like a canary in the coal mine is the media industry. Its reliance on digital technologies has really not ended well, right? Many were lured into even uh, disinvesting from their own sort of like sovereign uh, technologies to rely on these guys. And then whenever a trick in the algorithm based on whatever that platform's preference of the day was has adversely affected them, the death of the an industry that would have otherwise been, uh, you know, sort of like flourishing because that was the first frontier, information and communications, is a serious risk to the point where we have what has been called an epistemic crisis because we don't have any trust. It is a, such a deficit of trusted uh, information sources and which was typically for the media. So that's where we also we need the media to speak about their experience, and it's starting to happen. I see folks like the Columbia Journalism Review for really media from all over the world to talk about their experience with that process to help the rest of us understand. I think what's really important, and I think it's something we as humans have learned really well, is to learn from the mistakes or the, 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 the failures or the you know, accidents that others have had. It's almost like we have to wait till it happens to us for us to understand it viscerally. And that visceral thing is usually a good thing and a bad thing because we are not seeing, so we can't see the storm that lies ahead until it's right in our faces. So right now, many people, I can understand why they wouldn't maybe have the latitude to have that conversation because right now it was just about adopting, transitioning, keeping things moving. But now we're locked in, right? You're in a digital world garden, but you've ceded control in the name of trying to survive. So how are you going to thrive now? You're going to have to join the others who've been trying to have this conversation from the outside in. We're going to have to figure out how do we then, if we can't get them to change fast enough, how we support um, alternatives to be built. How do we have demand-driven alternatives? You know, what's been called either small tech or platform cooperatives. 
how are we going to then reorganize our energies, our eyeballs, which is our currency really, and, and move the needle. That's now where we're going to have an interesting theater. And that's going to call for a really new, interesting kind of alliance around uh, civil society and governments too, because they also have to step up and step in. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, the point there about, you know, this kind of epistemic crisis we're in, and I guess it links to that idea as well of, of us having fallen into a, a sort of attention economy where, you know, the only scarce thing nowadays is our attention rather than and our ability to pay attention to things rather than content or, or information always strikes me as something that people in civil society are probably aware of as a wider issue that they read about in newspapers or hear about on the television, but often don't link to their own work and it, it seems to me like a particular problem for civil society organizations for whom often one of the most important currencies is trust and authenticity and actually that erosion of trust and, and authenticity is a huge challenge i mean do you do you think this is something that we will see more examples of because i think you know of, of the examples we've already seen of things like digital astroturfing you know where kind of corporations or governments are creating you know, fake but but realistic-looking digital organisations uh, to try and kind of fill fill the space with noise and confuse issues. Um, you know, is is this another one of the things that that we need to be guarding against in civil society and speaking up on? Absolutely. It the point of departure being how we understand this problem and how we organise our our energies and our resources towards addressing it. The trust element, for example, these trust, ethics, morals, these, if you will call them soft, yet very important norms in our societies, are not just about being online or being offline. You have to cultivate a healthy way to keep them alive and active. But part of this is because I think for a long time, we have outsourced expertise. We've outsourced who knows best to others. We've forgotten of how to, to, to come to the table and think of each other as people who know based on our experiences to code uh, that, that, that sort of like shared understanding. So that these silos for, for a world that's so interconnected now and where there's so much information, it's amazing how many silos exist across so many spheres, you know, whether it's just, uh, you know, information bubbles or uh, operational bubbles. It's really ridiculous that you can still meet somebody who doesn't understand a, a, another part of the world other than their own, right? It's not because the information is not there. Uh, coming back to this notion of the local and coding knowledge from that commons of a local to build bottom-up is so important, even as we think of these macro complex issues that we face ahead of this decade. Uh, you know, I've spoken about how this is the age of how all the cans have kicked down the road. We're going to have to go back to our histories, really, and start unpacking because there's a big pack of cans, a big pile of cans we're facing ahead. And we have to tackle them. We cannot just make a straight path for where we want to go and think these other cans will not go away, you know? And that kind of thinking is needed a lot more just to help all of us, regardless of where we are, but who are committed to trying to address these issues, trying to mitigate the damage and the effects that we're living through and the ones that we live through and the ones that next generations will. If we can find a way to just sit with the discomfort of all of this and then start unpacking it and shit, you know, claiming this is what I'm trying to work on. Uh, this is the part of the chunk of the question or the chunk of the issue I'm working on. Who else is working on what other chunk? And we can build sort of like interoperability of the issues because no one actor is going to be able to do it alone, however mad, uh, huge uh, they become as an actor. I think 
if we can find a way to start making that happen, we can complicate even the trajectory, whether it's the net bad you know, that we've seen, we can complicate how it has an effect. Uh, and more importantly is we mustn't wait. If we can dismantle this notion that until it happens to the West, it's not really happened, that will be a good day. <laughs> it will yeah, be a good absolutely. day when any, um, whether it's an, uh, you know, it's an island in the Pacific or a landlocked country in Africa who has been affected by any particular planetary issue, climate change or digital technologies leading to particular harms based on use and appropriation. If that can get the world to, to pay attention and not wait till it happens in the backyards of Brexit and, you know, that other place, <laughs> we, um, we would be doing good. That would be a good start. That would be a good start. And I mean, it does seem as though, you know, the pandemic has been a shock for, for everyone, you know, around the world, but in you know, lots of, of Western countries, people and, and within civil society in, in the UK and the US, people suddenly sort of thinking, oh, right, you know, we weren't very well prepared for, for a shock like this. And I think lots of other countries around the world looking in some surprise and saying, well, we sort of deal with this kind of thing quite quite regularly and and actually are more sort of geared up for for responding in the face of those kind of crises um but it, it seems to me there's there is an opportunity off the back of this pandemic to get civil society and particularly funders to think about the importance of funding those spaces and those networks where civil society can play that role of providing foresight but also trying to kind of bring together lots of different viewpoints to develop the kind of imagined futures that we need. Do you do you see that happening much at the moment? Or do you think, again, that is somewhere where philanthropy really needs to start thinking more about putting its resources? You know, it's been interesting to see how the language of foresight and futures has emerged and has already quickly uh, coalesced into an industry. If it's really what we want, we will allow room for those who want to go the industry path and call themselves experts, to do that, but also to not pigeonhole everybody to start running around using the buzzwords du jour. I think anybody who's dealing with, uh, you know, the, the, the complexities or the intersections of inequalities in any community is already by, by definition working on foresight issues because they have to think about what happens tomorrow, what happens a year from now, what happens five years from now. Some corners of the world right now um, would be saying, we've been seeing this for the last 50 years. We've been seeing this for the last 300 years. Nobody was listening, but now we have to package everything into industries and language and sort of constricting ourselves to how we view the world. We're selling ourselves short again, and we risk selling ourselves short. I've seen this language already being introduced in civil society in conversations about future civil society uh, and the intersection of that with the tech or the fourth industrial revolution. It's already creating, you know, it's like creating this little like Venn diagram of a new cottage industry that might must arise. And the rest of us must either expand to accommodate that or force ourselves into it, but not naturally progress in the ways that we deem appropriate to work on these issues without having to be constricted to that language um, that, that, that now is getting a few people's attention and interest. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Again, it goes to that the the power of of field shaping by the ways in which you kind of give terminology to things and decide who is in the room and who who isn't in the room. I think it's a, yeah, it's a really 
uh, important point. I'm, I'm aware I'm in danger of keeping you all together too long. So, I mean, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, I just wanted to to ask before I, I let you go whether there's, you know, well, firstly, I guess whether there's anything particular that you've got coming up that you'd like to flag people up to, and also to leave you with one sort of big picture uh, last question, which is, you know, on balance, are you broadly optimistic or pessimistic about the impact of, of technology on society and the role civil society can play in that? On what to watch out for, I think anybody who wants to think together on, on this stuff, you can find me making interesting noise on across mm. socials. That's all I would say. Uh, there's so many aspects to it. I would like to encourage anybody who listens to this who thinks, oh gosh, this tech thing is so fast. Just realize that really your, your inquiry with basic questions of what, why, I always use the analogy, ask questions like a five-year-old, why, how come, what, 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 until it's explained in a way that you understand in your context, especially if it's supposed to affect you. I think that's how technology should work in service to society, not dictating society's future. And if we can start doing that, I think we can, we can spread the sort of like, uh, you know, diversity of thought that we need to shape tech from every sector, from every angle. Uh, am I optimistic or pessimistic? I am curious. I am curious to see if all that we talk about, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, how we move from there to, from walking the walk to talking the talk. I'm not one for labels. I think I started there and I'll end there. Uh, I think there's there's room for it to to swing across the pendulum of you know cautiousness and optimism, uh, and I know some people say a middle ground is being a an, an, uh, cautious optimist or pessimistic optimist. I'm just <laughs> curious, really, on how we get this done, and more importantly, I'm committed to trying to work, think, uh, you know, do what we have to get done with everyone who wants to get it done, uh, so that we can heal the world. I think that that very much sums up the way I feel about it as well, um, and a great place to leave it. So just just remains to say thanks ever so much, uh, Nanjira, for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Nanjira for coming on the podcast. Um, I will put links in the show notes to lots of things relevant to stuff that we discussed. Uh, if you're interested more broadly in issues around tech and civil society or just kind of philanthropy in the round, uh, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website where there's all kinds of blogs and podcasts and videos and that kind of thing. Um, if you are interested in these issues, uh, follow Nanjira on Twitter and I'll put links in the show notes to, to her social media feeds on there. Uh, also, uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy if you like stuff that's more about kind of history and theory of philanthropy. Um, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, uh, do drop me a line at givingthought@cafonline.org. Other than that, uh, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, uh, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Bye!